0: Hello listeners, and welcome back to the 11th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. Amid the controversial backdrop of this World Cup, the football has actually been sensational. Yesterday, we were treated to a six-goal and five-goal thriller between Cameroon and Serbia and Ghana and South Korea, which we discussed on yesterday's podcast if you want to check it out and hear our thoughts on the games. However, last night, there were also two wonderful games for viewers to watch, and of course, we're going to dig deep down into the tactics from each match. In this episode of the podcast, we will tactically review Brazil's hard-bitten battle against a solid Switzerland, as well as Portugal's principal triumph over an unsatisfactory Uruguay. Furthermore, we will discuss the final round battles between Tunisia and France, Australia and Denmark, the huge top-of-the-group battle between Poland and Argentina, as well as the match-up between Saudi Arabia and Mexico in yet another can't-miss episode. There's lots to get into in this one, and I'm joined by Running Dog Media's Head of Betting and Affiliates, Lucas Mandelo, and TFA analyst David Astill, as we review the tactics from each of the last two matches and preview the coming games in yet another action-packed episode. Before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team, and so we ask that you make sure to gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board, and also make sure that you are over 18, as well as comply with the laws of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. David, Lucas, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited to hear all your thoughts on the past 24 hours of World Cup action. We've a lot to get into, so I'm going to just jump straight in and, and start with the game between Brazil and Switzerland. Obviously, Brazil ended up winning one 0 We thought that Vinicius Junior scored a lovely goal towards about about the hour mark or just after, and it was ruled out for offside. Rightly so, it was offside, and then of course Casemiro came up with the with the goods a couple of minutes from the end in what was an absolutely fantastic finish from a, from a, from a six, which is very impressive. I think. I always saw Casemiro as a, uh, a player who was a ball winner. He's a bit of a, to, to be cliche, a, a bit of a destroyer in front of the back line, which he still is. Don't, don't get me wrong. that's He still has probably his best abilities. But I've been really taken aback by just how good he has gone forward since he's moved to England. I mean, his he, I know he scored a header against Chelsea, but he's had so many shots from outside the box, which have, I mean, come very close, hitting the woodwork at times. His passing range is scary. I mean, how could it not be playing with Kroos and Modric for several, several years? I mean, you, your passing range would improve. Luke, because I'll come to you first on the Brazil game. What were your thoughts on, on Brazil's overall performance? Because I actually think it was a difficult enough game, but Brazil didn't dominate as much as I thought. Do you think that was because he played Fred and Casemiro midfield together, which was kind of a... I don't want to say a negative move, but I suppose it's the, the best word I could use right now.
1: Well... I think it reflects a bigger problem than, you know, you have heard me saying this a few times already that Brazil doesn't play that often, you know, big games. And uh, after the first game, you had two big injuries with Danilo and Neymar. So I think there was some problem with team chemistry. The, the tactics and the formation were not like uh, uploaded into the brains of the players the way it should. And uh, it was at some point, uh, I just thought it was going to end as a draw. We had the situation in in Brazil that uh, everyone simply rooted for Vinny Jr. to see him scoring and mm-hmm. being the man he's been at Real Madrid. So it was a bit frustrating to see the goal this long because it would be, you know, uh, a boost in, to, in terms of confidence that he could definitely use. And that Brazil could use, especially if things be, you know, go south for Neymar you know, all the way. And uh, I think the collecting the points was ultimately very important, but it wasn't a very inspired performance overall.
0: Yeah, as I said, I was a bit taken aback by how much control Switzerland had. I believe they had 45% possession, which was a lot more than I actually believe they, they would have had before the game because of well, how Brazil like to play, and they are a very attacking side. But then I know the team was leaked um, two days before the, the match, which surprised me. I don't know if chiche is, is, is if that's something he just does willingly because he's not afraid of opposition, which is fair. I mean, I respect it. But it's, it, that the team sheets have been leaked to the media two, two days beforehand in both of their World Cup games so far. And I saw that Fred would start, and I was a little concerned because Fred is his best qualities are off the ball, not on the ball. And when you're looking to dominate a game, like they, well, they did technically still dominate. yesterday They with, with the overall share of possession or the majority share. Sorry. Um, I believe the Fred was maybe in, uh, just a bit of a conservative option that didn't give them the control they would have needed. And then you saw when Bruno Guimaraes came on, he it was incredible. He's an incredible midfielder. Newcastle got a steal when they bought him from Leon and he's unbelievable. And I think that especially next week against, um, Cameroon, or sorry, the, the, this week, I, I probably would start at a double pivot of, of, of Bruno Guimari and, 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 and Casemiro. David, what, what were your thoughts then on Switzerland?
2: Yeah, just just going back to that, I completely agree with you. I was surprised to see Fred and, and Casemiro mm-hmm. together because, like you said, they're both really good defensive players. But I think because Switzerland had so much control, they never, never really looked like going forwards. They sort of sat back a bit particularly in the second half, they they sat back, they didn't really do too much. And that almost invited Brazil to put the pressure on, which I think is why Bruno came on, because Brazil knew that they needed someone to come on who could get forwards and use those spaces. And, you know, the number of times that Brazil were finding those spaces between Switzerland's lines, which is where the the goal came from, in in effect, they were able to to play out wide with Vinicius Jr., that goal that was ruled out. You know, Switzerland leaving spaces open, Brazil using it, that was basically how it went. So I was surprised to see that. But I think, as I say, when, when Bruno came on, that really made the difference. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from Switzerland's point of view, um, yeah, like I said, they sat back. I thought they were they were a little bit too defensive. I was expecting a bit more from them, particularly after how they played in the, in the first game, you know, with that quick passing and, and ability to break teams down. Um, but I don't think they did that against Brazil. And I was surprised because that was a game that the way it was at halftime, you kind of thought if they go for it, they might have half a chance here um so for me i was slightly disappointed by uh, by switzerland um but on the on the day perhaps the way the game went it was the, the right result and i said it was, it was a great goal by casemiro so, to you know you, if you're going to to win a game it's a great goal to win a game um but yeah it, it was coming based on how switzerland was setting up for me
1: i
0: agree I, I do think switzerland could have brought the game a little bit more to them um you know one thing i do want to say is about manuel akanji Like Casemiro. Well, well, I knew Casemiro was a great player. I actually didn't realise how good of a player Manuel Akanji was before he went to Manchester City. I know he's ambipedal, meaning he can play with his left and his right foot. But his ability to break lines, I mean, he broke Brazil's line, their their Mm -hmm. pressing line so many times yesterday. He's an unbelievable centre-half, especially on the ball. Um, And obviously working with Pap Guardiola, even though it's only been six months, has really, really helped him develop so far as as a central defender. Lucas... Round two is now over of the the group phase. We're moving into round three, kicking off today, obviously in just over an hour as of recording. Brazil were the favourites. Are they still the favourites in the in the eyes of the betting markets?
1: Yes, the odds didn't really change. I wouldn't say it. they didn't change at all because I think after the first victory and considering the group situation, the markets pretty much anticipated this victory. The same one has happened with friends. The, the odds didn't change much. I guess the most significant changes that we haven't had in 24 hours was how Portugal odds became a little smaller, which reflects something that I had anticipated in our first edition of the podcast. They had odds of 19 to 1. Now it's just 12 to 1, which is almost a 50% drop. And Belgium has odds of 64% to, sorry, 64 to 1, which is a big number. It's like uh, <laughs> they are behind Denmark and Croatia, just <laughs> so you can have an idea.
0: That's unbelievable considering the yeah. the wealth of talent they have in the squad. And obviously, you, you can see the reports. Apparently, and again, take it with a pinch of salt because reports are only reports, but apparently, several players have fallen out within the team. You could probably gauge the truth in it from. The recent press conferences. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne was asked, "Will they win the World Cup?" He said, "No, they're too old." Then after the Canada game, Jan Vertonghen was asked, and he said something like, "The uh, we can't score because the attack is too old," or something along them lines. And now apparently they've all fallen out, and Romelu Lukaku of all people was working as some kind of like intermediate body between all the all the rowing. It looks as though Belgium have just completely capitulated at this World Cup, and what is the end of their golden generation? Because this is it. You know, they they have some good young players coming through, but they don't have. The, they don't have the the, the players that like the, in the ilk of de bruyne or Lukaku coming through who are who I would tip to be world class i mean i thought charles catalara would be world class he's gone to ac milan from uh, club Bruges and he hasn't really hit the ground running i mean he's struggling for game time for one so i've been quite disappointed with him so yeah i, I i've been incredibly disappointed with belgium just over the last 8 years i'd say this is their golden generation and the best they did was tour in the world cup Really disappointing. Um, your point on Portugal or Lucas in the in terms of their odds in the betting market is, is pretty interesting because nineteen to one before the tournament. I mean, me and you spoke about this. It was quite high considering the the, the talent they have within the squad. And I asked you actually it was Fernando Santos the, one of the reasons behind that and his pragmatic nature. But I'm, I'm happy to see they've you know they've their odds have have, have lowered since then. Down from nineteen to one to twelve to one. But we'll move on now to the Portugal game, of course. They beat Uruguay 2-0. Bruno Fernandes scored twice. Or did he? Yes, he did. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into it. It's a silly not it's
2: not Ronaldo's goal. No. no.
0: I don't want to get into a silly debate, but on that, I mean Piers Morgan still defended him on Twitter, which is, is I mean unbelievable. It, it, i don't I, I don't see how it's defensible. Um he clearly doesn't head the ball. Bruno Fernandez scored twice, and it was a nice... I mean, he deserved both goals. Uh, I'll come to you, David, on this. I was a little surprised with Uruguay because I uh, reading articles about Uruguay before the World Cup, I was led to believe that Diego Alonso was this progressive coach and they would play really nice football and with, with, with the fullest respect to Oscar Tabarez for 12 years prior or, or sorry, it was it 14 years prior um, I don't believe they played as well as they probably could have, they were extremely conservative throughout Tabarez's reign Diego Alonso comes in I, I, I don't see a difference, I mean yesterday they they went back to a 5 five three two 2 for the first time, Scott Martin uh, the wonderful Scott Martin wrote a piece about it on the TFA website It was the first time Uruguay have used a battery in over a year. Alonso went back to a battery in this game, just looking to to, to sit deep, stop Portugal's attacking prowess, and it just didn't work in the end.
2: No, and uh, I I was also quite disappointed with Uruguay. I I expected a lot more from them. It's it's a difficult one because they've still got really good players, um, but they're aging, and it's as simple as that. You look at Diego Godin... You look at Luis Suarez. You look at Edison Cavani. They are all realistically coming to the end of their careers now. Brilliant careers, but coming to the end of them. And like with, like with anything in life, you know, you get to the stage where actually it all catches up with you a bit. And I think that's the problem with Uruguay. They sort of they sort of relied on that generation for so long now, and this this tournament perhaps is just one too far. That's what they were saying in in you know post-match analysis on, on TV yesterday saying it's perhaps just, it's one tournament too far for Suarez, Cavani, Goudin, um, you know, all those sorts of players. And, you know, Suarez was a bit disappointing in the first one. He he had a slightly more uh, conservative role, wasn't making so many runs forward. Uh, he was dropped yesterday so Cavani could start, so they obviously were looking to try something different. They obviously weren't happy with the way they were setting up. I didn't really see much of it, too much of a difference. Um, yeah, it's it's a strange one because they clearly got talent. I mean, Darwin Nunez is a brilliant, brilliant striker. Um, as a sort of wide forward, I think he's actually almost come into his own mm. in this tournament because he's used his pace to get behind defences and to really create problems. So they've they've clearly got the talent, and you know, midfield, Facino and Valverde, I think they are they are genuine stars. They're brilliant, and but they're just they're just missing something, and it's you know, in the final third, they're just missing chances. They're not taking those opportunities, yeah. and just—it's just—it's little bits here and there that just go to make the whole picture, if you like. And you just feel like they're not there. Then they're, they're just not working as a team. Whether it's tactical, whether it's personnel, whether it's age, whatever, they're just they're just not working as a team. It's not functioning for them. And I don't the think moment. they
0: created too many clear cut chances either. And I mean, they had that that wonderful opportunity created by Rodrigo Bentancur when he dribbled past I think, two two Portugal players and got through on goal. He tried to go under Diogo Costa and, and it, was a, it was a good save. But other than that, I mean, I know they hit the post, but it wasn't a clear-cut opportunity. It was a nice... Yeah. It, it, Maxi Gomez, uh, it was a nice shot, I suppose, outside the area. He used his body well to, to hit the to hit the woodwork and then Luis Suarez had one as well, well where the ball dropped and he hit it with his left foot and probably prime Luis Suarez was, took that away. Lucas... Talk to me about, about Uruguay and, and their chances to progress to the next round. I still think they can do well. I mean, I know they can still do it. They have to beat Ghana in the next match and hope that Portugal beat South Korea. But, of course, it's expected that so uh, that Portugal rotate players, considering they're already through. So talk to me about Uruguay's chances of getting to the knockouts and Ghana and South Korea, please.
1: I think this is one of the most complicated groups to make these kind of predictions because mm-hmm. you have one team from each different, you know, FIFA jurisdiction. So when they measure forces in, in situations like this, we often just find out how strong they are in comparison with each other. You know, in practice, that's what happened in the group of Belgium. <laughs> For example, we, we had to see in practice how strong Canada and, and Morocco could be to, against the, the big European ones. Anyways, I think it will be a direct uh, duel between them and pretty much anything to happen in terms of the second spot in this group, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. It is an interesting group. And as I said, we're going into the final round of fixtures. Now, there's so many interesting groups. I mean, England's, for one, is a a really exciting group to look at because obviously Iran and USA is basically a winner-takes-all, providing Wales don't beat England 5-0, which I'm I'm highly certain is, is... isn't even a, a scenario that will ever happen in life. In their one hundred and forty-nine, you willing
2: to bet on that?
0: No, <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet a thing. I'd bet, I'd bet. A send. <laughs> I mean, I was reading an article and it said that they have to have their biggest. Oh, I, I actually wrote this. Sorry, that's embarrassing. I actually wrote that Wales need to have their biggest um, win in history, bigger than the Belgian game in the twenty sixteen Euros. Uh, and I, I mean, this would be if they if they beat England five 0 I would have forced to put my hand up and go. Do you know what? That was incredible. I am so wrong. I should have bet my life savings on it, but it's not going to happen. Iran and USA will be battling now for second spot, in my opinion. I just want to talk about Portugal really quickly, though. And, David, I'll ask you. They have been. uh, Fernando Santos spoke before the tournament about Portugal being more expansive and creative. They have been, to their credit. Maybe not to the extent of a a Spain or a Germany, but they still have been quite expansive. And they look a lot um, more creative on the ball than they have in recent tournaments where they've genuinely bored everyone to tears I, mean, I remember last season's Euros it was desperate at times absolutely desperate uh, do you fancy their chances and I know Lucas already spoken with the odds but do you fancy their chances then of going all the way in this tournament they have a lot of great players
2: it's a really difficult one I mean there's everything to say they could but then you have to consider would they beat a rampant France mm. Because realistically, France are the front runners. I mean, Spain as well. So France and Spain probably are two front runners at the at the minute. Would Portugal beat either of those? That's probably the question you want to ask if you're thinking, are they going to go the whole way? And the answer to me is, oh, I don't know. If you took Ronaldo out that team, if you took Bruno Fernandes out that team, I feel like at the moment there's a few Portuguese players that aren't quite there in terms of their top ball. And I think if you took out the key players, so you took out Bruno, took out Ronaldo, took out Rafael Guerrero, for example, because his service from the left is always dangerous. If you took out those players, would they have enough? Probably not. So I, I would expect maybe the way they're going, maybe a semi-final, maybe a final. If they, if they beat one of Spain or France, perhaps, I, I don't know off the top of my head if they're in the same half of the draw, if that's possible, but let's just say they are, for the sake of example. Would they beat them in a the semi-final? I, I don't know semi-final maybe final maybe would they win it i think probably not
0: mm-hmm. i agree and i think that fernando santos has been using a diamond over the last few matches i personally don't like the diamond and i never have the reason being a diamond is never a diamond johan cruyff spoke about this before in a video on youtube you can find it's in dutch but it's translated to english uh, using subtitles it's a really good video and he speaks about the diamond and he says that the the diamond is never a diamond because in any phase of play, your your players in the midfield diamond will always be stretched and moved. So one will step out left and one will go out to the right and then one will drop between the center halves so and one will go forward. It's never a diamond. Ne- I mean, it's never a perfect diamond shape. Maybe a rhombus. It's never a diamond. I don't like the diamond. Um, Defensively, it probably works a lot more than most formations because you can set pressing traps in the midfield. Uh. But I just don't believe against a France or, or, as you said, a Spain. I just I can't see them going fair with formation. Maybe he drops to a 4-3-3. I mean, they've done that so many times. And we'll see classic Portugal being their pragmatic selves. We'll move on, though, to previewing tomorrow's games. First up, we have Australia and Denmark. This is an interesting game for a number of reasons. Denmark have to win. Australia, I, th- I don't believe Australia have to win, but they need to hope that. France beat Tunisia, of course. Um, David, how do you see this game going?
2: Well, I suspect Denmark will control the majority of the game. I think everyone's expecting that, but also tactically, we can expect that because Australia are very good at the back. Their tactics revol- revolve around sitting back, um, protecting their goal. Hmm. They they organise themselves very well. Um, and, then, and what they do is they hit you on the brakes. So they send a long ball up to the likes of Leckie um, or... They use the pace of Alwam or Garan Kual. Both of those are very quick players. And then they hit you on the break. And Leckie is, is used as their outlet. So just like we saw with that goal against France, that was exactly how Australia likes to play. They hit the ball long, find Leckie. He's His job is then to pick the pass. And obviously in that case, he found Goodwin. So that's how they play. So I would expect them to sit back against Denmark. I'd expect, I'd expect them to make sure they're organised defensively. What that means is I think Denmark will, as I say, control the majority of the play. What will be interesting is with Denmark playing with wing backs, therefore effectively having five, you know, attackers, four or five attackers up up pitch at the same time. Will that perhaps outnumber Australia and force them to split and create gaps, which might be what undoes what undoes Australia? So, but it's an interesting one, but tactically it could it could go either way, depending on whether Denmark can find a way through Australia.
0: Just touching on that point about the wingbacks. the last two games from Denmark I've been really disappointed with their use of the of the formation they've gone with. And it's not the case that the battery formations don't work. I just don't think it's worked well in this tournament for them. I'd actually wouldn't be surprised if they changed to a four three tree maybe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Give them a little bit more control in the midfield. You know, so as you said, but but I could be wrong. I mean they could go with wingbacks because they've they've done it and they've done it for a long time. Casper Human used it at the Euros, too. It was a great success. I mean, they almost got to a final. They were just knocked out by by uh, Sterling after he dived. No, I'm joking. Uh, of course. They, <laughs> of course. So I, I I wouldn't anticipate a formation change, but I would probably like to see it because I think, especially as you said, Australia will sit deep and hit you on the break. My worry with Australia is that against... Obviously, they beat Tunisia 1-0, and okay, that's, that's fair, but is it Denmark or a different animal? And you saw against France, when they're sitting deep, they can be picked apart by quality. And it's not their fault. I mean, you can have the best tactics in the world. Quality will always try and, I mean, will 99% of the time will outdo tactics. You, you just, you can't, I mean, you've guys like Eriksen in the team that can unlock defences with, with his eyes closed. So I think Australia will find it really difficult. As I said, a point would be an incredible result for them because I would expect France to be Tunisia. Um, we'll move on now, though, too. Yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll come to you, Lucas Force, on the on the odds in this game. Are, are Denmark the favourites?
1: Yeah. I mean, as much as, as Argentina is considered the favourite team against Poland right now, you have odds of 1.53 on average for Denmark to win against Australia and 1.5 for Argentina. So, pretty much.
0: What about Tunisia and France, then?
1: Well, I think this one is tricky. France has similar odds here, with one point forty six on average to win. However, you never know how many subs are going to be fielded and well, this uh, is what I was gonna
0: to... yeah, this is what I was gonna allude to. I would yeah. imagine France will rotate quite a lot.
1: If you consider the world of professional gamblers, this is a game that they usually avoid because this kind the worst thing isn't really you know the rotation itself, it's the motivation levels. When you have, you know, motivation that is hard to tell how strong it will be, it's a big red flag to Mm -hmm. to professional gamblers and I have a best with with this kind of uh, institution. So I would say that this game is even more complicated because you have group C where you don't really know what could happen in terms of who's going to finish second, meaning even fighting for the first spot at group b where francis could not mean much i mean eventually you know finishing first could mean getting a worse adversary in in comparison with with the other situations Mm so it's a hard game in terms of the betting markets but for France, it's it's interesting because you you have the chance to rotate some players and uh, you know prepare the next stages
0: well, we saw that in 2018. I remember in England's group, and they—I think it was the final game against Belgium. They—they they lost to Belgium, but they, it was probably the best thing for them because they had a much uh, more comfortable run to the final. They got Colombia, Sweden, and then Croatia, whereas Belgium, I think, got Brazil as well, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere along them lines. I think at the quarterfinals, and then got France in the semis. Yeah. So yeah, this is you know it was a much more difficult um, run. So you're right there about you know top spot might not always be an easy run into the in the knockouts David how can Tunisia be France then providing I mean even if France rotate their depth is amazing they will still have world class talent on the field Tunisia have struggled a little bit well not a little bit a lot I mean I don't think they've scored yet I remember in the first game against Denmark they were pretty good and Kasper Schmeichel made some wonderful saves but again not, not, not to make it the same point I made a few minutes ago France are a different animal How do Tunisia beat France? They have to win.
2: They do. I I think the the only realistic way they can do it, because France are so good and have so much quality around the pitch, the only realistic way they can do it is to pick on particular players. So you can isolate their key players. So for me, I think Teo Hernandez has to be marked 24 because if you give him an ounce of space, as we saw against Denmark and saw against Australia, he can deliver wicked balls from the left and really create problems in the middle. So if you stop the service, I think that's one thing they have to do. So that would be the job of the fullback or the winger, all combination of the both. Adrian Rabio, I think, has been one of the most underrated players in that team because he's disrupted play. He's almost sat back and, and sort of made interceptions and done, done the dirty work, as people say. He's done that unseen role, which allowed others ahead of him um, to, to, to flourish. So I think also stopping him getting on the ball as well. So if you isolate those two, that then also means that France aren't going to get aren't going to get the balls forward that Mbappe and, and Giroud like to, to, to thrive off. So that would mean that potentially one or, or two might start to drop back a little bit as they look to get on the ball, particularly Mbappe, because he's a bit more mobile than Giroud. So that might then take some of the threat away from Mbappe. So it, it'll be little things here and there, but it's, it's kind of a case to isolate key players and then try and, and force them to drop back a little bit. And I think, as I say, the further away they get, they get from the goal, obviously the less threat because the longer the distance they're going to shoot from. Um, so that's that's basically the only way they can do it. I mean, they have got players to do it. I mean, Laidouni's shown that he's yeah. really effective tackling and things like that. So they have got the players to do it. Whether they can or not, it's a different matter. I'd argue he's
0: probably been the best player of the tournament. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. So would I. So would I. But I think, um, yeah, Tunisia. it's going to be tough for them. It depends who France line up with, because like mm. you said, they're through, they, they have the ability to rotate and you would fully expect them to rotate. So it depends what which players they've got, how they look to play whether they look to sit back and just take a point or whether they look to try and practice a few more tactical things going forwards. Um, but I think if Tunisia are going to have any hope, that's what they have to do.
0: I would like to see Hannibal Mabry start. Hannibal Mabry is a very, very feisty player. I mean, I think a uh, um, uh, Manchester United U coach once once described him as a mix between Paul Scholes and Roy Keane. He certainly has a temperament of Paul Scholes, or uh, Roy Keane, apologies. And I know Birmingham City's manager has recently publicly spoken out against him he didn't rip him to shreds, but he said he needs to change his attitude. Hannibal Mabry is a very, very feisty young player. Um, I think within... He made, uh, I'm pretty sure he made his debut at Anfield in a 4-0 loss last season. And he was on the pitch for about 10 minutes and he got a yellow card. And he the first thing he did was boot Jordan Anderson. Then and he kicked Sadio Mane and then someone else and he got yellow card. Um, he has fight in him, though. And I know it sounds quite cliché and not very tactical. But I think Tunisia lack of... They just lack a bit of a spark. They they lack like they lack something. I want to see, I want to see someone who can fight. And of course, this would be a great game for Mabry because he's half Tunisian, half French. Um, he chose Tunisia in the end, though. We'll move on though to the final round of fixtures in Group C. For some reason, Group D is forced. Uh, that did annoy me. But anyway, we'll move on to Group C now, which is the seven o'clock fixture uh, tomorrow, UK time, of course. And again. This is a really, really, really interesting group. If Poland can take points off Argentina and Saudi Arabia beat Mexico, Argentina bowed at the World Cup. Lucas, they were one of the favourites coming into the tournament, Argentina. What are odds looking like now in, in, in the eyes of the betting markets, considering they're... I mean, Poland haven't conceded a goal yet, and they've looked okay, you know, defensively especially.
1: Well, the odds have recovered some some value in the sense of... Um, actually, it's the opposite, because when the odds get smaller, you lose value mm-hmm. in technical terms. But uh, after the Saudi Arabia fiasco, the odds were really different than, be- than before the tournament. They were the favorites together with Brazil. Yeah. And now they are the fourth team most likely to win the cup in the eyes of the markets behind Brazil, France, and Spain. They have very close odds compared with England. But still, I think that for odds of 9 to 1 as they have, it's still a long shot. And, and the odds are about right in, in this sense I won't get much into how these things should be calculated. But in, the, in terms of the alt-rights market right now, I would say Brazil has very small odds that don't represent value. France has decent odds, Spain too. And Argentina would be, you know, a no-go for me at this time. I'm surprised. Especially
0: because... Yeah, I'm just... I'm surprised that they have better odds in England at this moment in time. I know you said they're quite similar, but you said they're still a fourth favorite to win the competition. After the Saudi Arabia, Arabia game and England's 6-2 thrashing of Iran, and even against USA, I don't think England were ever in that much danger from the Americans. I'm surprised that they're not... Or could you Could you give us maybe some enlightenment on why... Argentina would still be the favorites in that situation. is it just is it just messy?
1: It's a phenomenon that uh, is is common in the World Cup, which is overestimation of teams with some big history. I think the market man, some this kind of tournament is weird because you mix the big bets of the professionals with some millionaires that bet just for fun. Mm-hmm. So the odds may be, you know, a little bit stained, if you will, in the sense that uh, they they reflect uh, very different positions in the market. But I guess it's the phenomenon where you you have seen Messi scoring, and and that gives some hope to to those that believe in Argentina. But uh, I believe England to be a lot more solid in in many ways. So to me, it's nearly outrageous to see Argentina. We're not so close to England. And uh, this is <laughs> often related to to rivalries or me, not like in Argentina, which is uh, a whole different story. But in the region where I live in Brazil, people are really close to to Argentines. And, uh, you know, sometimes there are some, some problems between the Brazilian team and the local teams here. Long, you know, old stories like... Uh, Players has been called in specific times to jeopardize the teams over here because of you know local rivalries. So, I'm not saying this because I don't like Argentina, I just think that uh, they have a tough situation at Group C, which should be reflected on the roads. So,
0: you're gonna have a Poland jersey on tomorrow?
1: Well, not really, I guess it's, it's, it's still a complicated game and. Uh, Yeah, I like things to, you know, when they're at a more clear stage to make bats and to observe things. And this group stage has proved to produce many surprises, you know, at all groups.
0: Michael Cox actually wrote a really uh, decent article for The Athletic about whether upsets create less quality, I suppose, in the knockout stage. It was really interesting. He is right. I suppose if bigger teams get knocked out, ultimately it makes for a. No, I mean, we want to see underdogs win it, but they never do. And then it kind of everyone rants them when England get Colombia, Sweden, and Croatia in the knockouts. But if there's less upsets in the group stage and that doesn't come to fruition, but David, let's discuss the Poland Argentina match then. They, this group in general is really interesting because, again, literally any team can go out, any team can go through. All four teams are in jeopardy. Poland are top, but they only have four points of Argentina win. They're above Poland. Once they, They'll finish top once they. Um, once Saudi Arabia don't trash Mexico, Mexico can still go through if Saudi if they beat Saudi Arabia and Poland beat Argentina. We'll, we'll talk first about Poland and Argentina then because, again, Poland haven't conceded a goal in the tournament. They probably should have conceded against Saudi Arabia, but Borussia Chesney has an, had an unbelievable game. Do you see a sort of similarity happening to the first game against Saudi Arabia where they really struggled to break down that back line, albeit Poland will not press them as high as Saudi Arabia did.
2: Yeah. Um yes, I mean Saudi Arabia have been really strong defensively, mm-hmm. and but Poland did did well to break them down. I mean, the second goal obviously was was a gift. I think everyone could see that. You know, Lewandowski's goal was quite simply just just a poor pass. Um, I think for Poland, what makes them tick is getting support up to Lewandowski. Um and I think that's what we saw a little bit in the first game that they lacked. You know, Lewandowski was at one end of the pitch and everyone else was sort of stepping back a bit. But I think against Saudi Arabia, we saw, you know, uh, Zilinski was getting up the pitch. We saw, um, you know, Krakowiak was getting up the pitch as well. So I think that's what they need to do, um, particularly against Argentina, because we know Argentina defensively are not as strong as, as they could be. So for me, I think... Uh, In order to have a chance of beating Argentina and and topping that group and making it into the knockouts, they have to get support up to Lewandowski. If they don't, he'll become isolated and Argentina will find it very simple uh, to cut him off, which will, I think, then just just completely make it not impossible for Poland to win the match, but certainly if you take Lewandowski out of the game, Poland struggle. Um, So, yeah, it'll be tough for, for Poland, but they can do it if they play the right way.
0: Touching on your point, actually, about uh, in the first game against Mexico, I remember doing the podcast at the time, Poland played with a 6-3-1 at times. Uh, and you're right, they had no support for Lewandowski up front against Saudi Arabia. They used Akhadej Milik, uh, and they were much better going forward. Again, they probably shouldn't have kept a clean sheet looking at the XG and looking at the overall chances I mean, Saudi Arabia missed the penalty, ultimately. But... They were far better going forward. Whereas against Mexico, I don't remember one clear-cut opportunity, barred a penalty from Lewandowski. Um, yeah, so yeah, agree. yeah. So I yeah. think they they playing with Milik up front alongside Lewandowski gives them much more of a, an attacking threat. I hope we don't see the same kind of game plan as they used against Mexico. I actually, this might be controversial because I understand the Poland are top of the, top of the group right now. I don't think. I think Poland are probably the favorites to go out with a competition alongside Mexico. Saudi Arabia will use a similar game plan that they used against Argentina. Because Mexico will want to dominate possession just like Argentina did. Against Poland, Poland didn't care about possession. They, they wanted to sit deep and defend. And that doesn't really suit Saudi Arabia's game. This one does. I think they'll beat Mexico. I'd expect Argentina to be able to use their quality, even if it's just a like like we saw against Mexico, Mexico Messi using it a lovely finish in the bottom corner. I'd expect Argentina to beat Poland, and then we'll see Poland bowing out of the competition. Lucas, David, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. Make sure to tune in tomorrow as we review all of the action on Tuesday, as well as tactically preview the final round fixtures from Group E and F with some stellar games to come, so make sure to check back in for that. And share the podcast too, as it really helps us grow. Thank you for listening, and goodbye for now.